0: This is SLAS Technology Podcast. I'm David Pector. I want to welcome Professor Jim Collins of the Department of Biological Engineering at MIT to the SLAS Technology Authors Talk Tech Podcast. Professor Collins spoke yesterday in a SLAS Ignite featured talk, Harnessing Synthetic Biology and Deep Learning to Fight Pathogens. I recommend it to those who missed it. We have Jim back for Q&A. And uh, let me start with something very topical. Uh, with millions awaiting their synthetic messenger RNA vaccines, what do you think this coming of age moment means for the future of medicines made using synthetic biology? I think that
1: it's a tremendously exciting time. First of all, you know, I commend the efforts of Moderna and Pfizer and related ones. I think it speaks to the real power of of engineering biology, enabling us to rapidly develop new medicines uh, in the face, in this case, of truly a worldwide crisis. So its I was amazed at the high rate of efficacy exhibited by both, and I think it bodes very well for this century of introducing to us really new and different modes of, of medicines. You know, I think we're going to see two, I'll say three general things around that one also coming right out of the pandemic are engineered diagnostics, both lab-based ones and paper-based at-home ones that are coming out of various synthetic biology efforts, including CRISPR-based diagnostics. And then in the therapeutic space, I see two dominant themes. One is really seeing synthetic biology ramping up our ability to regulate effectively and safely gene and cell therapies. So I see with the ability to have synthetic gene circuits and other manipulated molecules that it's opening up tremendous possibilities. And then third is this idea, building on current gene and cell therapies to extending living medicines, to engineered bacteria becoming a living medicine that can be engineered both to produce biologics at the say infection site or disease site, as well as to consume or process toxic molecules that might be present in a patient's body. So I think it just opens up a degree of controlling and and kind of these new classes of adaptive medicines and even adaptive diagnostics that we just don't have presently.
0: So I want to switch gears a little bit because I'm intrigued by the implications of that work that use deep learning in antibiotic discovery because I come from a high throughput screening background and anything that can tackle a 100 million uh, compound database and sift through there and come up with 20 some odd uh, interesting compounds is a pretty powerful set of technologies. Um, What do you think this is gonna mean for drug discovery in general?
1: You know, I think that these efforts in deep learning some by us and, and as well as by other groups I think it really opening the possibilities of embracing the complexity of biology and embracing the complexity of chemistry in ways that we haven't done before in drug discovery. Expanding the ability for us to explore very large and massive chemical space be it in, in silico libraries and or even harnessing the power of design to take the insights learned from these deep learning models in order to build de novo and or modify existing molecules, making them that much more effective from either a bottom-up standpoint or from a top-down tweaking standpoint.
0: In silico uh, screening, virtual screening has been around as an idea for a while. Do you think we've turned a corner there?
1: You know, I think we have. I mean, what, what we did in brief is we teamed up with Regina Barzilay, who's an AI expert at MIT, going back about two, two years or so ago to see could we harness the power of AI and specifically deep learning. To address the antibiotic resistance crisis. And what we did in an unfunded project uh, was put together a very small training library of 2,500 molecules, 1,700 FDA approved drugs, which included basically the known universe of a few hundred antibiotics, as well as 800 natural compounds. Screen these against just E. coli, just asking which exhibited antibacterial activity. We then used those data to train a deep learning model that could look at the chemical structure of each of those 2,500 molecules and be trained to associate which of the molecules and their structures were correlated with being good antibiotic or those being correlated with not being an antibiotic and could then arrive at this trained model that we then apply to libraries, whether empirical or in silico and begin asking questions. So here where it was kind of an augmented tool was we could ask three questions of the model, look in these databases to identify molecules that are predicted to be good antibiotics, Two, identify molecules that are particularly good antibiotics as well as don't look like existing antibiotics. Mm. And three, on top of those criteria, we had trained an associated model around toxicity, identify a molecule that also would be non-toxic. And this now dramatically reduces the time and the cost for screening and can very quickly get one to, in this case, completely new chemistries that for our instance we're getting after novel antibacterial compounds.
0: Which is a challenge because you've come up with new mechanisms, and people spend a lot of time trying to come up with new mechanisms for antibiotics. So that, yeah, that's that, right. And you know, here I mean, be, it's it's kind of odd in
1: some intuitive way of training it with a set, basically, of known antibiotics. Although we did go beyond that, but then pushing the model to come up with something new and different, and that's where that second criteria that it we wanted molecules that didn't look like existing ones provided us with new structures that turned out to actually have novel mechanisms. It wasn't guaranteed they have novel mechanisms, but the ones of interest to us turned out they did. I
0: was wondering if you could take us through your process. How do you bring a new idea in and develop it? What's the, what are you thinking about as you are looking for an idea and then how are you kind of, kind of incubating it in your own laboratory? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I'm not sure how much there's a process to
1: it but I'll give some of the things I think about and then I'll speak a little bit to some aspect of process maybe an aspect that might surprise some. So, you know, I do think we're always looking for the next problem. We're always looking for the next cool, exciting problem to go after, as well as thinking and looking to see how can we apply what we have to new and interesting problems and new and interesting applications. And so that motivates one. Two, related to that, you always wanna have as big an impact as possible. We tend not to go after the next obvious question or a follow-on or derivative, but really try to push ourselves to go after those big new problems. We always will try to pivot or position from strength somewhere that we have expertise or some knowledge, but we'll often move into new spaces because that's where it might be fertile ground for say smart and motivated amateurs. You know, your challenge is always matching your talent at your disposal with your projects and matching products to your talent. Here, it's a matter of always trying to find that right set that could execute. And increasingly, I've been encouraging my young people to work very hard to identify low-risk, high-gain projects. High-risk is a challenge, right? The probability that a success is low because by nature it's high-risk. And it's better to go for the low-risk, but the one that's going to be the high-impact. Kind of on the process, I think there's a few things. One is, you know, I read an awful lot. So I think it's important to stay abreast of the field. I think it's important to stay abreast of other fields. And maybe the surprising aspect of my process is that I do try to spend a good amount of time, even each day, just disconnecting and just thinking. It might be music, might be while walking, running, but I don't think we spend enough time just thinking and spending time in our head. And particularly for the young folks, it's it's going in to just see what, comes up And you, know, you can spend many hours frankly, you can spend many weeks or even many months without coming up with anything. But you have to be comfortable with that if you're really looking to get for that next big idea. What I tell my young trainees at MIT is that my experience in the startup world is that the science the technology, the platforms that we develop are maybe five to 10 percent of the success story. And 85, 90 percent of the success story is really about the business team that was put together and their ability to execute, to strategize come up with a vision and move on that. And so for anybody interested, I would encourage you to really take your time finding that business team, because that's the, that's what I think is the real key element of success for translation. I think as we look out on this century, I think there are going to be two dominant tech fields, artificial intelligence and synthetic biology. And so there'll be many exciting advances. And I think one can come to synthetic biology from many different perspectives, be it the basic level, or the more applied level, it could be more from the biological side. It could be more from the engineering side. You know, as much as even my home department at MIT called biological engineering, you know, biology is far from an engineering discipline. We do our best to bring engineering principles and do our best to interact with living matter, soft matter, organic matter. Uh, but biology regularly gets in the ways of our design. So you know, for a young person, I you know, I think it's, I wish I was 30 years younger. It's a tremendous time, I think, to be a young person. So much more to be discovered out there, uh, particularly the life sciences. So much more to be developed, particularly in the life sciences. That I say, put in the time. I think a few points to that, I think young people today, uh, I think devalue expertise. I would say content still matters and to work very hard to get a good foundational base in whichever of the foundational disciplines, whether biology, physics, math, engineering, et cetera, and then become an expert, really read as much as possible. Read is not reading a tweet on a paper. Read is not reading just the title of an artist's feed. It's digging into a literature and getting your arms around it and becoming the expert in that space. And then talking to as many people as you can in the field to get as many different viewpoints and ideas going. And once you've kind of built that base, challenge yourself to begin to think creatively to come up with new questions, maybe new ideas that could be introduced, but it's, you got to put the hard work in. And, you know, an expert is not somebody that has X thousands of followers on any of these platforms. <laughs> it's really somebody who has uh, an, it's built up that knowledge base, who has an experience on being a scholar, on being a creator in that space. And it's to, it's to work towards that. And it's, it's a long path, a hard path, but it's, it's a path worthwhile if you want to get into innovative cutting edge research.
0: You are in Cambridge, which is a hotbed for biotech. So what's that like? Yeah, you know, it's fantastic. So my my main lab is at MIT,
1: right in Cambridge. I also have a lab at the Broad, just across the street in Cambridge, both in Kendall Square. And I have a lab at Harvard's Vis Institute at the Longwood area at Harvard Medical Center. For over 20 years, I was a professor at Boston University in Kenmore Square which was, fant- I loved it. It was a fantastic community, incredibly supportive. But I moved 8,000 feet from Kenmore Square to Kendall Square six years ago into a completely different world where just the density of innovative folks doing cool cutting edge work was mind boggling. And, and so much so that you literally leave your building to just go across the, to your other lab and you in that short span can bump into three or four world-class scientists or leading investors or leading biotech uh, folks. And everybody's there. So there is something to be said for proximity. Now, in fairness, we haven't been there because of the pandemic. We're all feeling it and and I think missing it. But as a space, it's unrivaled in kind of about a square mile or so in terms of real innovation happening, particularly in the life sciences. And so it's it's just a really special place to be. And we actually have an interesting challenge in that. There's so much capital being put to work in the biotech space and so many cool new things coming out, whether it's CRISPR or synthetic biology or broader other spaces, that we are really tapping dry the business talent pool. So if you talk to venture cap, if you talk to young investors, that's gonna be their main is Can they find a CEO? Can they find a, biz, a head of biz dev? And so in our little ecosystem, we need to do a great job of encouraging more and more young people to go into the innovation, but we also need to encourage young people who can become
0: the business leaders. Any questions from the uh, audience?
2: Dr. Collins, um, I'm a big fan. I took classes with you back 20 years ago uh, when you were still at Boston University. So I'm one of your undergrad biomedical engineering students. that has been sort of unleashed into the world. And um, I actually ended up more in the engineering track. um, And I ended up doing automation and robotics in the space of biotech and pharmaceutical industry. So, you know, my most recent tenure, I'm at Intelli at the moment. Um, So CRISPR is a big thing, right? That's been sort of the speak in the town over the last seven to eight years. Yeah. Um and we've seen how the market has reacted to it. I guess my question to you is um what do you what do you see as the next big thing sort of the next cutting edge technology that might come out um in in the world of life sciences.
1: Yeah, you know that's an interesting one. So oh, I'm glad you could join us and you must have been in BE402 our controls class and so happy to hear you're in automation and uh yeah. In fact, and Intelli is a great company and the, your space has gone crazy from a market standpoint the last few weeks. Absolutely. You know, it's interesting, right, to predict or, to, you know, comment on the, the unknown, unknown, which would be, say, the next really big thing. I, you know, I, I, I don't know. I, I'll make a comment that David kind of triggered from me and, and might, I might have made it before you joined, Olga. I do think adding elements of control to things such as CRISPR therapy, broadly gene therapy, cell therapy, where you can have both sensing the environment, making a decision on it and adjusting in a true feedback manner. So I didn't even elaborate further, but having feedback loops, adaptive circuits of the type we talked about in 402 20 years ago is I think the future. I think CRISPR can be both front-end and back-end. So that can be both the detector, the sensor, as well as the effector. But I think we need to put in these feedback loops to truly have adaptive medicines of the type of our thermostats we have in our homes, but now working hard to try to keep a healthy state. And when you think of the CRISPR elements uh, and you know the cool things you're doing in Intelli, I I see that we still need some significant elements of regulation, not FDA regulation, but of biological regulation that we don't yet have. And I think Broadly, engineering biology, synthetic biology is going to be the tech that's going to come out that's going to help us advance that.